What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up Finance Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions happening in the world of finance. My name is Matthew Campbell, and joining me is my partner, Camden Okanati. This week's topic is what's up investment picking in a crazy loud world. What's up, Matthew? And thank you guys for joining us today. My name is Camden Okanati, and today we have a very special guest. His name is Joseph, and he'll be joining us on our What's Up Finance podcast. His family comes from El Salvador. He was born and raised in Los Angeles. He spent 11 years in the U.S. military as an inventory control manager. He's a business major, political science minor at Chapman University. He is, he is trilingual. He has had experience working for Sony Pictures Entertainment as a corporate finance intern, and he has passions and pursuits in working in the financial world in the future. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Camden and Matt. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, I want to start off by asking you a couple questions mm -hmm. about your life so that the audience can know more about you. So what else can you tell us about yourself? Well, uh, as far as finance goes, well, uh, or about myself in general and my background is that uh, I think uh, I've never taken a, a direct path into anything or a traditional path. Uh, and so this is why at my age, I'm, I'm 34 years old and I'm at Chapman University. Um, it, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's important for people to understand that uh, there's no one path to success. Uh, and I think that uh, you can take any road that as long as you get there, uh, that's what's important. Now, with having your vast experience with uh, the military experience and with your age, with age comes uh, wisdom and knowledge. Do you <laughs> so that was my question. So do you think that you have an edge over other Chapman students or do you think that you're still, uh, you still have competition? Uh, what do you think your age has a, a play uh, with, you attending Chapman University where the average student is around probably like 22 or 23? Well, I think my edge would be, well, part of my edge would be an experience and, you know, the experience that I've had not only in life, uh, but it's also what I've learned in the military uh, because, you know, the military is really big on leadership and you, you learn a lot about yourself and about leading others and um, in a very high stakes environment. And so I think that's very important. Being able to work as a team is very important. Um, communication skills and soft skills that what I see in today's generation is people, some people are just very afraid to just talk to other people. And that's very important to do when you're going into the private sector, when you go, when you have to tell your boss, you know, if you have to tell your boss that he's wrong or she's wrong, how do you do that in a tactful manner? And I think some people, uh, I think that comes with experience, and I think that's where I have maybe a little bit of an edge. But other than that, uh, I think we're still all competing for the same jobs here. Have you ever had to say no to uh, your boss or your commander or your general, the guy overseeing you in the military? Yes, uh, many times. I've always, uh, you know, I've been in meetings with way higher leadership in terms of hierarchy, right? Um, in terms of rank, uh, and I've always, I've never been afraid to speak up and say, hey, you know, we're forgetting this, or this, I think this is a better way to do it. Uh, and it, it can, like, you, you do it in a tactful manner, very respectful way. Um, 
and you don't do it like in an attacking way. So uh, I've had pushback. I've had people that you know will push back and they'll flex their rank or their position and they'll trump you know that will trump my say. As long as it's not it wasn't illegal, immoral, or unethical, then I would have to go along with it. So, and I think I, I will still hold those standards today. As long as my boss made me do something that was that was not illegal, immoral, unethical, uh, then I would follow it. But if if it ever came to those to those extremes, then uh, I would definitely stand up and say, no, we're not doing that. Now, on the topics of morals and ethics, uh, being uh, this is a financial podcast, and being that we'll be speaking about sustainability and ESG investments and the integration of ESG investments in your own portfolio, what type of finance do you want to pursue in the future? So I recently took a class on mergers and acquisitions, and it's very interesting, and I kind of want to dabble in that. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to 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 give you one specific answer because I've only done... I've only had experience in a very, very small niche portion of finance and finance is very broad and there's so much out there in the finance world uh, that I think it would be very limiting just to say, I want to do this without trying all these other, um, you know, sectors of finance, like maybe uh, being a, a broker or something, you know what I mean? Or corporate finance, being in the FP&A team. So uh, I kind of want to dabble a little bit here and there and then I would make my uh, decision. From working for Sony Pictures Entertainment as a corporate finance intern, what was the biggest takeaway from that experience? The biggest takeaway, well, I got to learn how the entertainment industry uh, does their P&Ls, some of the contracts that I was able to uh, read. What I learned is that there isn't very much standardization when it comes to contracts. And so they kind of, it makes it a little inefficient uh, when when processing all this stuff. Um, There might be a little bit of standardization as far as like the structure of it, but the fees and royalties and all that, they're all negotiated. Each deal is very different. And so you have to review these contracts every time you, you have to do these statements. And so, uh, that was one thing that I picked up that maybe there's potential there to streamline that in, in, in that sector, at least. But other than that, I got to experience working in an office in an office environment. And it reminded me of the, the TV show, The Office. It was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. And last question, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Where do I see myself? Well, hopefully out of California. Uh, I will not be living here in California, so I'll probably be living maybe somewhere in Colorado or maybe even Texas. But uh, hopefully in 10 years, I have made up my mind and picked a career that I would follow and become an expert in. Uh, and and I'll be steadily moving along my career. That's that's where I see myself. Hopefully with a family and kids and a, and a house somewhere as well. Amazing. So we are going to start with discussing the newsletter for this week. Our topic is on what's up investment picking in a crazy loud world. So in the past week, week and a half, we have seen a lot of data coming out, like the CPI data. We have heard remarks from President Trump at the Economic Club of New York. Um, One of the, the first bullet points in the market section this week said that 
The White House is the new central bank and Federal Reserve. So we're going to elaborate on this. What we meant to say is the White House and the remarks coming from President Trump has a huge impact on the market because his remarks are changing the direction of where the market is heading. Now, with the new uh, release and the new remarks from the Economic Club of New York, uh, Trump spoke about how he and his administration is exceeding the expectations of the economy and how they have launched an economic boom that we have never seen before. But also during his remarks, he has criticized the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell for doing an inadequate job. A quote from this, uh, from his remarks at the club uh, is, but since my election, the S&P 500 is up over 45%. The Dow Jones is up over 50%. The NASDAQ is up 60%, slightly more. And if we had a Federal Reserve that worked with us, you could have added another 25% to each one of those numbers. I guarantee you that. Matthew and Joseph, what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to start by saying that this is something that's definitely unprecedented. We haven't really seen a, a U.S. president wield so much power and influence over the economy. In fact, even uh, before he was elected, I know there was like a lot of concern about the impact that he would have on the economy. And um, there was an article in the, uh, in the Economist and in the Wall Street Journal separately that both talked about that the president's always had more of a limited impact on the economy. And uh, Stephen Levitt and uh, Stephen Dubner, the guys behind Freakonomics, even argued that in one of their uh, podcasts that we wouldn't see this. But in fact, we are seeing this because he's been uh, one of the more like hands-on presidents. And um, he's worked very hard, I guess, to really have an influence in the economy. And we're seeing that more and more. And it's kind of a dangerous thing because generally the Fed, they hold their meetings. They have uh, backgrounds in economics and they go through a set system um, with the intent of having a certain outcome on our economy, and that can all be thrown away with a simple tweet from the president. So um, it's a dangerous game. I don't think it's unprecedented. Uh, I think that, you know, president, you know, they call it the bully pulpit for a reason, and whatever the president's cause is, he's going to champion that cause and use that pulpit to his advantage. And being that Trump is he's a business guy. I think that he's, he's using that to, you know, to his advantage. I don't think it's, it's right what he's doing. Um, and even Obama admitted to this in one of the interviews many years ago, he said, you know, he had to be very careful in what he said, because if he said the wrong thing, it could send the stock, you know, the stock market flying, you know, in a negative or positive direction. And he wanted to be as careful as possible in choosing his words wisely whenever he spoke because of that. And, as far as the Fed, you know, lowering interest rates, and some people are, are saying that they're doing that at the behest of President Trump, um, I don't think that's I don't think that's true. The the Fed needs to be independent, and I think they they are independent, and uh, I don't I don't I don't I don't see <clears throat> them following, uh, you know, the president's you know orders, so to speak. So. Uh, yeah, I think it would be very uh, unprudent for us to to go down this path where you know the, the the Fed chair is doing what the president wants. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say that because the Fed, on the other hand, is maybe one of the few uh, and, parts and of like, paper in our government that is actually not falling in line, um, which I think is a really good thing. And hopefully that stays that way. But uh, to go back real quick, just to your comment about Obama's comment on the economy and stuff. Well, that's been true that like a president can wield a lot of influence short term. I think that we've seen much more with Trump, like consistently throughout his presence presidency than with other presidents. You know, and that that may be a good thing or a bad thing. I think we, we still don't know because he's being very transparent, right? He's communicating directly with the people, you know, what he thinks, and he's not afraid to express himself through his tweets. You know, in the past, these presidents had a hard time doing that uh, because, you know, obviously they didn't have the accessibility to the, you know, smart technology that we have today through smartphones. And so we'll see what, you know, how this is going to play on, especially in the going into the future. Are more presidents going to be tweeting directly to the American public? And uh, yeah, only time will tell. Now, the Federal Reserve's purpose is the Federal Reserve System is the central bank of the U.S. And it performs in five general functions. The Federal Reserve conducts the nation's monetary policy to promote maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates in the U.S. economy. It promotes the stability of the financial system and seeks to minimize and contain system risk through active monitoring and engagement in the U.S. and abroad promotes the safety and soundness of individual financial institutions and monitors their impact on the financial system as a whole. It fosters payments and settlement system safety and efficiency through services to the banking industry and to the U.S. government that facilitates the U.S. dollar transactions and payments. And lastly, it promotes consumer protection, community development through consumer-focused supervision and examination. Now, those are the Federal Reserve's purposes. Do you think that Trump has influenced any of these or has taken these purposes under his own wing? So the, the inflation part, uh, this is interesting because, you know, as our, econ- or as our debt continues to rise, <clears throat> I don't know if they're doing this intentionally or unintentionally, but <clears throat> they... As our debt continues to rise and they continue to print cheap money, which is going to cause inflation, which means that the government will have to repay a less amount, right? Uh, that's what inflation would do. And so is the government's intention to inflate our way out of debt, which would be detrimental to you and I and everybody else listening or here in America, uh, because it's a it's what some people call a double tax, because you're not only paying taxes on, on your income, but then you're also losing value on on your money, uh, and so you could consider that another tax. Uh, you know, your your mother your money wouldn't stretch as far. So it would be very interesting to find out if if their true intention is to try to inflate our way out of this uh, this national debt crisis that we have because it is a crisis. That's a great uh, transition to move on to the next topic. So also in the newsletter, in the market section, we talked about how the Hong Kong protests have been going on for 23 weeks straight and how the stock market cycle rarely lines up perfectly with the economic cycle. And we have discussed this in the newsletter in the past where it's called the Vietnamese walk down Wall Street, where the alignment of the U.S. 
economic cycle and the stock market cycle are highly correlated to each other. And this could cause people to think that they could follow the trends and the movements in the business cycle and they could base their investments off of that to try to beat the system or to, uh, to achieve alpha by outperforming the benchmark that they're tracking. What do you think of this? Do you think that the stock market is correlated to the economic cycle? Do you think that uh, they both have uh, some type of relationship with each other? Or do you think that they're totally separate beings? I think they're one and the same. Uh, with the, you know, this, this famous term, the business cycle, some people argue about that. Like, is there really a business cycle? And what I thought about, one of my professors said that the stock, the stock markets are usually up three out of four years or four out of five years. And what came to mind uh, almost instantly was what happens every four years in this country? Well, we have elections. And, you know, when, when you have, for example, a left-leaning government like Democrats, you know, they view business in, a, in one way. And then if you take a Republican side or, or right-leaning government, they view, you know, the economy in a different lens. And so I think you know the the invest the average investor is probably trying to position their their uh, trying to find positions to maximize the benefit to whichever government is coming in next. And so I think that this is this is what creates that quote unquote business cycle or that volatility. So think about it. If you have a if it's looking like a Democrat's going to win, with, especially with what they're saying today that they want to tax everything and increase regulation, well, that makes it very difficult to conduct business. And so uh, people are not going to be very favorable to, uh, to those conditions in the market. And so they probably would withdraw and probably go to bonds or something else. So I, I think uh, maybe there's a, there's a little correlation there as well. The, you have to throw in that political factor, especially if you have somebody like Trump that says, hey, I'm going to cut taxes. Well, that's good for business. That's good for everybody. And you're correct on that point where in the business cycle, uh, it's most of, most of our activity in the U.S., most of our consumer spending is funded by uh, debt. And with this debt, people take on more and more debt. And the, the influence from the newly elected candidate to the newly elected official uh, with their policies and what they want to try to implement, like tax cuts or interest rate cuts, or their beliefs on a, a wealth tax, that affects our decisions and our consumer spending. Correct. And even though that uh, our economy is funded by debt and there's a debt cycle where there's buyers and sellers, and uh, when debt is cheap, we take up more debt and more debt and more debt, but when interest rates become higher, we start taking out less debt. We start start saving, uh, then investing or spending, because it just gets too expensive to fund our monthly payments to pay off our debt. And sometimes people don't even do that. And right. when that happens, uh, people stop spending. Uh, sellers stop getting money, and then that causes a contraction in the economy. Well, we're in a difficult situation because what we're doing right now is not sustainable. The amount of debt that we have outstanding is not sustainable from a consumer point of view, even from a corporate point of view. Corporate debt is really high right now, and which why shouldn't it be if the money's cheap, right? And it's cheaper to to uh, to pull out debt than to be beholden to your stockholders. 
by you know per, you know the you know having that hurdle rate for their for for returns so i think um i think the reason why i say it's like a catch 22 is because you know like you said if if we we need to increase our savings right but then that's going to cause a contraction and if the economy contracts then you will have people that won't have jobs and it's just like a, a self-fulfilling uh, I'm sorry, self-reinforcing cycle, vicious cycle downward, and this is not good. So I don't know how we're going to get our, get ourselves out of this. The good thing is that the United States has a higher savings rate, though, than Canada. I think Canada is in, in trouble right now, and uh, we'll see how that plays out over there in Canada. But I was surprised. I thought Canada would have a higher savings rate than the U.S. That is surprising. It is surprising, but you know what else might contribute to that is the fact that the, the other parts of the world are not doing good. And so, you know, people are, are sending their money to the U.S., which is propping up our economy. Um, and we're not feeling those negative effects. For example, the negative interest rates in Europe and um, Japan. Uh, I think Italy's in recession. Oh, there's, there's many parts of the world that are in recession right now, and their unemployment is rising. And so... We're, we're not feeling those effects because, you know, like I said, all those people leaving Europe, you know, want to come to the U or at least their, their capital is coming to the U.S. and China. China continues to devalue their currency. Well, uh, all those Chinese millionaires and billionaires, they, they're not going to they don't want to keep their money in, in the yuan denominated, uh, you know, currency. They're going to come to the U.S. and invest here in the U.S. where they can actually grow their money. So it, it's almost like a. I hope it's not like a house of cards and 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 it all comes tumbling down. Yeah, well, the biggest downside of globalization is everything being so connected, and so yes, you get that down. Everything is very connected right now. Um, it, uh, Hong Kong being in turmoil, turmoil right now is is very big because Hong Kong has a huge market and they're a huge hub for you know financial uh, uh, for finance in general. And so hopefully they, they, if, if they were to go down in a really big, let's say, uh, not civil war, but like a revolution against uh, for their independence, uh, it, you know, it might have really big ripples through the, the worldwide economy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, with that, I'm going to move us on to another section for my newsletter this week, especially just having talked about inflation. We had an article on uh, consumer price index and inflation because last week um uh the october consumer price index came out and it showed a significant um increase over last month and it was the largest increase since march it was 0.4 percent um and that brought the year-on-year -year basis to 1.7 percent so just under that um two percent target that the fed kind of tries to see so we'll probably see that by the end of the year um holding this holding this current um trajectory uh, so again, going back into like our talk of the business cycle and stuff and, uh, the power of the fed, it seems like things are on track where, um, the fed chairman wants them to be, which is why also at the last meeting, he said that they probably won't, uh, they're probably going to hold off on any other rate hikes through the end of the year. And after seeing their inflation kind of be on track to where they wanted, that's probably going to be true. What are you guys thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, for maybe the national average is one point, or might be one point seven percent for uh, 
for inflation, but this is not the case in places like Los Angeles or in California in general. We're seeing inflation at a higher rate here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I understand those are national averages, but I think if we break it up a little more as to where people are actually living, I think you would see that the inflation rate is much higher, especially with you know rents going up very, very high. The, the price of homes are, are very, very high. Uh, and it's not, it's kind of a distorted view. And I hope that, uh, I'm sure the Fed is, is also looking into that. But and it doesn't help also that in places like in California or Los Angeles, there's very high taxation and very high regulations making everything more expensive. And so it might be an artificial inflation that wouldn't be caused naturally through, uh, you know, just the, the normal consumer spending and the cheap money that's being printed. Uh, and that might just be adding to it. To give more context on CPI, the CPI is a measure that looks at the weighted average price of a basket of consumer goods and services that is calculated by the Bureau of Labor Stats. And by looking at this uh, basket of goods, you're able to determine the cost of household goods and services, such as food, transportation, medical care, and energy. And one of the reasons why CPI ticked up 0.4% uh, in October is because the energy prices rose 2.7%. And that's uh, why. But how can that be? You have to ask yourself, how, how come energy prices are up when in reality energy prices are down? So here in California, we have you know, artificially high gas, uh, you know, gasoline prices. But nationwide, everybody else is paying about two two dollars and two and some change in, in per gallon per uh, for gas, and so natural gas is is really cheap right now because of fracking. Uh, the price of crude oil is down. So why how is energy going up? So we have to think about in October. Uh, we have to look at the macro space, and in October, uh, that's when we saw the events taking place in Iran and Saudi Arabia, where. There was a bombing uh, of a facility in Saudi Arabia that disrupted 5% of the global supply of oil, and that's why gas prices increased in the U.S. due to that. Well, I don't, I don't think that's, that's fairly accurate because the, the, the attack from Iran into Saudi Arabia was very negligible. One, because Saudi Arabia is sitting on a huge, huge supply of oil. Uh, so they were able to come back to market without really impacting the market. Uh, I'm sorry, they were able to bring their, their oil facility back into the market uh, fairly quickly, and it didn't have a big impact on... Well, you have to think that you have to think that this is a monthly index, right? So that was September, and that cut their um, production capacity in half, right? Mm-hmm. So um, even though they were able to get that back up and running within just a few weeks... Correct. Like, said that's five percent of uh, the world's supply so leading into october that had that impact that we're seeing on the price at least so due to the increases and decreases in the supply of oil and about uh, how the u.s is very strong in their fracking practices and with this movement of our generation the millennials and the gen zers trying to create a cleaner and greener environment. Do you think that uh, non-renewable fossil fuel investments are still profitable and still uh, are viable to look at? Yes. 
we're not leaving oil or oil derivatives for a very long time. And that is just reality. I think what people don't understand is the how energy works and how dense and efficient oil products are. If you have to look at the evolution of energy in this not only in you know mankind, but we could just do that here in this country. You know, people first started burning wood. Uh, wood is not very efficient. Then people started burning dung. Then you have things like kerosene that came in and, and candles. And eventually we got to the point where we're at now with using, um, you know, fuel, you know, that's derived from oil products like gasoline and diesel. And there's, I haven't seen anything out there that's going to be able to replace that except for nuclear energy. But now we're talking about on a, on a big scale. And so I, I think that we, the future is still with, with uh, oil products. If you look at cars, you know, even if you could charge your car super, super fast, uh, an electric car, I'm sorry, if you could charge it super, super fast, it would still take, what, 30 minutes? You know, I could pump gas in five minutes and then drive for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And you can't do that with electric cars. So there's huge limitations. There's going to be a market for electric cars. But I, I don't think the things like internal combustion engine are going to be obsolete, at least not in the coming couple decades, I think. There is a market for electric cars, and we have seen commitments from Volkswagen and Volvo saying that by like 2025 and 2030, their whole fleet will be electric. And this is due because uh, consumer trends and consumer preferences are shifting. In regards to great investment opportunities, uh, as investors, as wealth advisors, as consumers, we should know the current trends and monumental changes happening in the investment environment. And what we're seeing now is a huge shift away from fossil fuel investments and into more sustainable, more renewable investments called ESG investments. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investments. And with our generation being more proactive with expressing their opinions about global warming and climate change and uh, political freedoms in other countries that are being taken away because the government is either corrupt or not uh, very open to their citizens having freedom of expression or freedom of protest, we see this space becoming larger and larger every single day. Now, Joseph and Matthew, do you think that ESG investments as an investor yourself are worth looking into? I think absolutely for a couple of reasons. One, there's just the ethics behind it. It's something that we have to move into if we're going to do the right thing and help save this world and our world, the world we live in. Um, and that's something we're going to have to move into relatively quickly. The, with many reports saying that by 2050, if things don't drastically change, then there's not going to be much of a world left for us to live into. There's that argument. And then on the other end, uh, with the new generation coming in, like Gen Z and stuff, we're seeing the younger generations be more and more concerned with things that are environmentally friendly, with renewable energy. And all these consumers, they're eventually, they're going to grow up, they're going to get jobs. And they're going to be a very large market and this is what they're going to want. You know, we're seeing more and more vegans. We're seeing uh, more and more people interested in electric cars, in solar panels for their homes. 
and that's where we're going to see a lot of money move. So it's definitely worth looking into and getting behind. Respectfully, I think I would have to disagree with all of that because, uh, first of all, who determines what the right thing is? This, this can be very subjective. What is the right thing to do? When it comes down to the environment, there's a lot of misinformation going out there right now. Yeah. You know, let's just take this vegan movement, for example. Uh, I, I was having lunch one time with this uh, woman, and I asked if she was vegan, and she I asked her if she was vegan because of dietary restrictions, or did she just do it because, you know, for whatever reason. She said, oh, no, I, uh, I, I'm i doing my part to save the, the environment and the planet by being vegan because uh, that way we can conserve water. And I said, well, do you know how much water it takes to grow plants? You know, <laughs> this is this is what I'm talking about. There's a lot of misinformation there. Yeah, but to so, um, being vegan, eating vegan for just one week saves the equivalent amount of energy as driving a hybrid for one year. Cows are the number one contributor to greenhouse gas gases due to methane gas. So outside of the water argument, because you're right, things like plants, almonds take a lot more water. Um, but there are definitely, there's definitely um, a large environmental impact in consuming meat and the meat industry uses a lot. There's a, there there's a large environmental impact in producing any agriculture or, or product because then you have machinery. True, not a lot of them are as direct as the impact we see from methane, specifically from like the beef industry. Or is it that and nobody's really uh, investigating or researching the environmental impacts of, of almonds and pistachios or or all these other products? Because remember, we have to use fertilizer uh, to to produce all these plants. And I don't think anybody's really researching the environment, environmental impacts of lettuce, right? I think uh, they're just going to the most obvious, like let's do cows. Of course, there, there's trade-offs, but I think the, my other point is that there's there's trade-offs, and you know if you're going to invest in these companies that that supposedly are ESG, then I I don't think that's the the, the whole picture. That might be part of the picture. Obviously, you don't want to do business with somebody that does things unethical, and I think that's already happening around the world. Uh, I think people have morals and ethics, and they they wouldn't be conducting businesses or business with people, for example, that enslave people in certain parts of the world, like literal enslavement, not not people that are underpaid to the U.S. standards. So, uh, and with, with environmental sustainability or the sustainable part of it, solar panels are really expensive, right? It it, it takes like 15, 20 years for you for it to pay itself off and. For you to actually, I'm sorry, for you to be able to pay it off and then for it to pay pay for itself. And so I, I don't see that as sustainable. Well, you're thinking like while that was true, even just like a couple of years ago, uh, the price of silicon, the price to reduce these panels and their efficiency, the price is going down. They're becoming more efficient. For example, my dad, he's about to put solar panels on um, his roof and it's cut his uh, electric bill by 40% initially, just because we're able to produce that much solar energy and of payment for them is that low. So while we'll see by the end of the year, if he breaks even with the electric company or not, I mean, right from the first month when we turn them on next month, he'll be saving $150 a month. 
So the problem the the problem with solar energy is it's not the, oh yeah of course during the daytime you could use the solar energy but what happens at nighttime so you have to have some kind of huge battery system to be able to to take that power and store it so we have a storing problem and yeah. so now if, if we're going to if we're going to bring in these huge batteries into your home which are made out of lithium you know you're destroying the environment to mine for this lithium so once again it, it's a trade off it's this it's this misinformation that's being that's being you know spewed out there about the environment. Um, we are going. It, it, the world's not going to end in 2050. The world's the Earth is not going anywhere. These are the same alarmists that in the 1970s were saying that the Earth was getting cooler, and then the same people in the 1980s that were saying that the world was going to end by the year 2000 if we didn't cut emissions. I'm going to respectfully disagree with that one because I would urge you to look at uh, the UN's climate change report that came out two years ago with top scientists from many disciplines across the entire earth. It's not the same people. These are renowned published scientists who have all come and agree on these standards. And since then, we've only seen more and more alarming numbers. These are people, uh, this is not data based off from stuff from NASA, from uh, organizations across the entire planet. And it's a well-funded committee that filed this report. Small percentage of the of the scientific community that's actually saying, "Hey, these some of these numbers are off because it depends on how they set up these models. You could get huge variations in results depending on how you set the models and what are you specifically testing for. The reality is nobody knows what's really going to happen, and these are all estimates. And I'm not saying those same people like." meaning like literally the same people being alarmist. I'm just saying that alarmist in general with the environment. And it, you should, uh, I, would, I would urge you to, to, to listen to some of those scientists. Uh, just, I actually, I think about a month ago, there was a, two studies that came out. I think one out of Japan and one out of like Sweden that said that, yeah, the earth is not, you know, they were refuting the, the, the current hypothesis. And so you can't say that science is irrefutable. If you say things like, of course, everybody agrees that the quote unquote climate is changing. Yes, the climate has always been changing. The problem is what do we do about it? And that's where it becomes very, very tricky because now you have people that are pushing complete socialist agendas on the left and they're using the environment as an excuse, for example, the Green New Deal. Or do we take a, 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 an approach where we use uh, you know, data and, and what's best for the economy and for people as, as a whole. For example, what gives us the right here in the United States to tell people in India that they can't build coal fire plants to, to produce electricity when they have huge swaths of their population without electricity? So it, that's what I'm trying to get at. If we, even if we convert to, even if we convert to everybody driving uh, electric vehicles, there's going to be environmental impacts in that. For example, how, most of our electricity here in the United States is generated through coal, 50%, at least 50% is. We're moving towards, we're tr the trend is we're mo moving into natural gas, which is more efficient, it is cheaper, it is, it is cleaner. That's what we should be doing, right? And then it, the, the ultimate goal should be to transition to nuclear energy. But we even have people that don't want nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is the most uh, energy efficient form of energy out there. And so that's what I'm trying to get at. And thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. And just from listening uh, to both of you speak your opinions, I have developed my own 
thesis on what you both believe in. And again, it is a trade-off. So if you want to get into wealth management and you want to be a financial advisor, you both have very distinct opinions and they're both opposite views. And as a fiduciary agent to your client, your views should never have a play in what investments you choose for your clients. It's based off of your client's needs and wants. And uh, it's also about profitability. So uh, another thing we mentioned in this newsletter this week is eight out of the 10 largest ESG funds in the world hold fossil fuels in their funds. And why is this? Because fossil fuel investments are still very, very profitable. And without these investments, these funds will not have an adequate return that will make their investors happy. Two, yes, we have to think about profitability, but we also have to think about what our client wants. Because there's going to be a huge shift in uh, money going from the baby boomers to the millennials to the Gen Zers, we have to put in mind what they want and what they believe. And most of these millennials and Gen Zers believe in renewable energy and ESG investments. And they're moving away from the older fossil fuels, even though these fossil fuels are still widely used today and are still very efficient and still very profitable. So moving on, uh, thank you both for your input and for this great debate. Uh, it was very enjoyable to hear. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to get different perspectives in issue. Yeah, I agree. If I could say one more thing about the investment thing. Yes. I, I think that at the end of the day, what people, yes, people might be concerned with, uh, let's say, energy, the energy sector, right? And they might pull away investments from that sector. I think that would only make those investments more lucrative for other people that would be interested in making profits. Yes and no. If they're moving away from it and there's no longer a demand uh, to buy into these investments, um, these investors could say that, okay, based off of our fundamental analysis of trying to figure out the intrinsic value of these companies, we no longer see these companies producing a profitable or sustainable cash flow in the future. And based off of those uh, uh, predictions and those estimates and those forecasts, people might start leaving those investments because they truly believe that the cash flow will no longer exist. Correct. Uh, right. I think you nailed it on the head. The demand has to change. And for the demand to change, there has to be a better product on the market. So, for example, if we developed, uh, I don't know, you know, cotton that, that you could use in your vehicle and power your home with it, right? Some super safe and green, renewable form that was more efficient and, and better than our current system or, or our current products, then yes, then it would make sense to divest away from that dying sector. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to invest in VCRs today in 2019. That, that, that would be, you know, that's an obsolete technology that's already, uh, that, that's dead. <laughs> and so I don't think people <laughs> would be investing. Like I said, as long as there's a demand for it and I see the demand for a long time because I don't see an alternative, an efficient alternative yet. Yet. Whereas we could most likely see development and tons of money in the R&D space going towards uh, investing in discovering renewable energy solutions than fossil fuel solutions. And well, this actually, sorry, what was that? 
I'm sorry. Uh, there's actually what's going on right now in the in the energy sector, at least here in the United States. Exxon Mobil and I think a couple others have have formed this coalition to invest in R and D. And what they've developed is what's called carbon capture, and it's actually proven very efficient. They're they are capturing all the excess carbon from their refineries and from their uh, operations. And they're actually reusing that energy. And so it doesn't just go out into the atmosphere. That is, is probably more promising than trying to, you know, turn these vehicles into, I don't know, electric vehicles that still use these huge lithium batteries that are still really bad for the environment. So I think only technology, the advancement of technology and on time with the right investments, will we'll see what happens in the future when it comes down to energy. Correct. And on the topic of capturing carbon dioxide emissions, there are five ways to do this. One, you can plant more trees because trees suck CO2 out of the sky naturally. Two, uh, you could uh, use organic uh, soil because soil sucks CO2 from the sky through crop and grazing lands. Three, uh, it's called carbon sequestration which is equipment that captures CO2 straight from smokestacks. Four, direct air capture, which is a type of technology that captures CO2 directly from the air. And lastly, five, mechanical trees, which is technology that captures CO2 directly from the air, but they're not natural trees. They're, they're tech that use the same processing system that the trees do to capture CO2 from the air and release O2 back into the environment. But moving on uh, to the term of the week, the term of the week this week is impact investing. And this has to relate to what we were speaking about with investors wanting to invest more sustainably. And the definition of impact investing is investing in companies, organizations, and funds with the intention to generate a measurable, beneficial, social, or environmental impact alongside a financial return. So this is shown in the ESG funds where they invest majority of their money in ESG sustainable uh, companies who have high ESG ratings, but they also invest in fossil fuels for that financial return. All right. Thanks for the term of the week, Camden. Next up, we have our book review for the week. This week, we're going to talk about Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, this book is one of the classics, and it's great because all three of us have actually read it, even our guest, Joseph. Um, so it worked out perfectly. So for those of you who don't know, um, this is a book about real estate investing. It's one of the first books I read on investing. That's generally the case since it's one that's like most often recommended. It's one of the more popular ones. Um, so just what do you guys think of the book? I think overall it was a good book. Uh, if you could take away some of the lessons and learn to discard some of the things that probably do not apply. Uh, when I first read it, uh, I, I wasn't very financially literate. And so uh, I almost took it as gospel. But as time progressed, I realized that there's some things in the book that are probably not very true. But I think it's a good, overall, it was a good book. Um, and I think uh, most people should be reading it out there. Yeah, I would agree. I would just think that when you read it, like you said, um, 
it's more it's more for inspiration yeah. now it's in a book and um maybe not all the practices are good but also that it's a lot based on his life and it's just a lot of his stories and so it's good for getting inspiration getting you pumped to like look into further real estate investing uh topics and other books but it's definitely not the manual for yeah I think it, it, that book really did inspire a lot of house flipping, uh, and it's probably part of what got us in trouble in during the financial crisis. Uh, there was too many people trying to. Uh, I think that was the only logical reason why you would take out an adjustable rate mortgage is if you thought that you were going to flip the house in six months to a year, and so you would only pay interest and then flip the home. And that that might have worked maybe in the '90s, in the late '90s, early 2000s. But if you have everybody doing it, then yeah. it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So you kind of have to move on from that. And uh, hopefully people do take that with a grain of salt and, and you know, realize the dangers in it. It's almost like playing hot potato, right? And then in the end, whoever got caught holding the potato got burned. And it, all, it was almost yeah. to the detriment of our, our economy. So I believe that this book is overhyped, overread, over talked about, over recommended. It's out of out of fashion. It's just old. Um, and I have read many, uh, many better investment in financial books like uh, Intelligent Investor, The Richest Man in Babylon, Index Funds, uh, Think and Grow Rich, The Compound Effect, The Ascent of Money. So I believe that people should uh, Consider reading it, uh, read it, but don't think that this is the stable of all investment books and that you should live off of his beliefs because there has been many studies and rumors about how most of the things he talked about were not true, sadly. I liked reading it. It was one of the first books I read probably when I was like 13 or 14. It got me more interested in the investment environment, but... uh, now that I'm more knowledgeable about finance and about investing, uh, I don't even I don't even look at the key takeaways that we wrote about this book because uh, <laughs> I read better books and I think that people should consider um, looking past what uh, this guy talked about. Camden, I couldn't agree yeah. more. I think you you nailed it on the head. And like Matt said, it is a very inspirational book, but I wouldn't take it as gospel as you know uh to to plan your finances that way and you're right there's been a lot of controversy uh around robert kiyosaki afterwards because it also be it was his business right his business was to sell or to sell this book and to have these you could you know they do have seminars uh, and so they charge people huge amounts of money to go listen to this stuff and it's almost like cultish and it's almost like he's exploiting these people's ignorance and finance. And so that is the downside of it. Yeah. For our listeners out there uh, interested in real estate, I would recommend um, books by bigger pockets. They have a series of books that go into many different aspects of real estate investing. And those are much more concrete. Well, that ends our podcast this week. I would really like to thank Joseph for joining us uh, today for our podcast. Yeah, he is a great friend. Uh, we have experienced the highs and lows in Vietnam when we travel there together on a, tr- a school trip. <laughs> and we have experienced the highs and lows in our financial uh, special topics in finance class that we uh, have together. So thank you again for joining us. 
this week we spoke thank you this week we spoke about the uh federal reserve decision of uh and the cpi data and inflation we talked about uh esg and renewable energy investments and why you should or should not invest in it based off of two distinct beliefs and uh, we spoke about uh, the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Well, thank you, Camden. And again, thank you, Joseph, for joining us. And thank you for your service as well. Oh, I appreciate that. It was an honor and uh, it was a pleasure to conversate with you guys. Before I end our podcast, I just wanted to include one more note for the benefit of our listeners. While we were editing this podcast, the UN Environment program released a new emissions gap report showing that the world's emissions have been increasing by about 1.5% per year for the last decade. It notes that this will lead to temperature increases of nearly 4 degrees Celsius by the year 2100, bringing wide-ranging and destructive climate impacts. This report's findings were so disturbing that the report itself states the summary findings are bleak. This report verifies several other recent reports that have equally worrisome findings regarding climate change effects that are happening now. Here are just some of those recent findings. The Colorado River, the the main lifeblood of nearly 50 million people in the Southwest, has declined by 20% because of global warming and climate change. Coral reefs, one of the world's most biodiverse ecosystems, and home to critical global fisheries that feed billions, yes, billions of people are struggling to adapt to rapidly warming and acidifying oceans. With the recent findings, we would see these biodiverse ecosystems completely dissolve, killing thousands of species and the main food source for billions of people. Melting ice sheets are on track to raise global sea levels by 20 feet, threatening thousands of island dwellers as well as millions of people who live on the coasts. It is estimated that the current cost of climate change in the United States due to increased floods and fires is $500 billion annually, but by far the worst current effects of the current standards is air pollution causes an estimated 600,000 deaths each year in children under 5. And starting in the year 2030, at least 250,000 additional deaths in adults per year. We will continue to report on the findings of the acclaimed scientific community and encourage our listeners to be mindful of their impact. Thank you for listening.